You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, your host, and with me today is Dr. Cassie Hammond, Director of the Section of Family Planning and Contraception at Northwestern University Medical Hospital. He's also the Director of OBGYN Services at the Rehab Institute of Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Hammond. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Today, we're going to be discussing some of the challenges and the needs that need to be met of women with disabilities that you are specifically very close to as part of the Director of OBGYN Services at RIC. Tell us a little bit about your practice there. Well, we have a Center for Women with Disabilities at the Rehab Institute that's a multidisciplinary clinic that really serves women with about every kind of physical as well as cognitive disability that you can name. I see patients along with another gynecologist, a nurse practitioner, and also in conjunction with a team of physiatrists, and patients on any given day could have multiple sclerosis, spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury, transverse myelitis, cerebral palsy, really almost any physical or cognitive disability comes into our clinic to receive comprehensive women's health care. Why do you think there's a need for a separate reproductive health clinic for women with disabilities? Isn't the idea of the Americans with Disability Act that everyone should be able to be seen in the same clinic setting? That's actually one of the most difficult issues that we confront because you get at the heart of what disability really is and whether a clinic such as this does need to exist. I mean, if you really accept, as the Americans with Disabilities Act does, the whole contextual or social model of disability, Disability is not a discrete group. It's not something that a person belongs to or doesn't belong to. It's really something all of us have at periods throughout our life and often involves overcoming social and other artificial barriers that impose that on the individual. So with that kind of a framework, yeah, all of these patients that we see at RIC and the Women's Center really should be able to be seen in private offices because there should be no barriers to them. Now, what's interesting is if you accept the exact opposite model of disability, which is the medical model, which assumes that disability arises in the individual and is something to overcome, a la Tiny Tim and a Christmas Carol, or even the approach that Christopher Reeves tended to take, well, then you still are left with this issue of why is it that we segregate women's reproductive health care when you've got clinics that are providing comprehensive care based on the disability already at RIC. So, you know, I think the fact that I work in this clinic means, yes, I do recognize there are some patients who it's justifiable having in this clinic, but we are constantly asking ourselves, what is it that unites our patients? What is it that our mission is at this tertiary care center for women with disabilities rather than simply sending these patients to routine gynae offices. I think the place where we come down is, first of all, all of our patients internally are seen by both an RIC physiatrist and us. There are a lot of patients who we think should be seen in the community. Our patients are a little bit different because they all have a physiatrist also at RIC and are getting multidisciplinary care. But the other things that make them unique are that they all lack physically accessible reproductive and gynecologic care. These are patients who often can't be accommodated in a lot of offices just because the offices are unable to see patients of this weight or this degree of disability. Most of our patients tend to be viewed as asexual. So a lot of times if these patients do seek care in private offices, gynecologists and other healthcare providers forget 
to ask about contraception, to ask about sexually transmitted screening, because the immediate assumption is, well, this person's disabled, they couldn't possibly be having sex. I actually think that's a remarkably important issue, because it's not just a question of that. So many younger people may have been injured and and had started to have a sexuality that they were really enriched with, and then are suffering this physical ailment often, that is impacting upon them in so many ways, that to deny that that exists ever again, I think is only adding to the mental angst and physical concerns these people have. Well, I think you're right. And frankly, a lot of these patients who are already suffer from low self-esteem may be even more likely on that basis to be taking sexual risks that we don't know about. And healthcare providers are often quite likely to try to dissuade some of these patients from getting pregnant because of certain concerns about the risk of pregnancy that may or may not be well-founded. At the same time, and this is ironic, they often are also dissuading these patients from obtaining effective contraception, either because of unjustified fears of the contraception or because of this whole myth of asexuality. They don't perceive that they would be likely to be having sex regardless. Interesting. I'd like to talk a little more about that because obviously there are other reasons for contraceptive to be used besides contraception, you know, for control of menorrhagia or the period for a woman who is just very difficult to deal with the hygiene of the situation. And so do you think that oral contraceptives can be used in patients that have a significant physical disability? A lot of what we do at the Rehab Institute is not truly evidence-based, and I'd like to kind of say that as a preface to this discussion. And it's probably going to be hard to get good evidence with respect to disability because it's very uncommon that we deal with pure disability. Oftentimes our patients, for example, have spinal cord injuries and some degree of traumatic brain injury, and so it's hard to get uniform groups to give good evidence. So a lot of what we rely on are appeals to physiology and also knowing what we're doing at RIC and what a lot of these other specialty clinics are doing to kind of create standard of care. With respect to birth control pills, you're exactly right. Combination oral contraceptives have a lot of good both contraceptive and non-contraceptive benefits in this population because not only do a lot of these patients need birth control, but a lot of them, if they have menorrhagia, have severe hygienic issues, trying to deal with menstrual blood, trying to deal with anemia, trying to deal with menstrual blood if they already have decubitus ulcers and so forth. And so the ability to regulate cycle is greatly beneficial to these patients. They also, if they suffer from some kind of cognitive deficit, often caregivers will report some acting out around time of menses or behavioral disorders. So if we can use combination oral contraceptives, for example, to make patients amenorrheic, it will often also improve well-being for people who have cognitive defects. Now, the problem is everyone's worry is venous thromboembolism because we're often dealing with patients who are chronically immobilized. But the stance that we take and many other centers for women with disabilities have taken is that our patients are not the same as people who are chronically immobilized because of postoperative situations. Our patients, even some who are spinal cord injured, are often doing transfers and squeezing capacitance vessels so that they are not truly immobilized in the sense of other patients. We have people who are out there in wheelchairs playing basketball and doing track events, Frankly, the the joke I often point out with the nurses, which isn't far from the truth, a lot of these patients are much more physically active than I am (laughs) without a physical disability, and yet we're loath to give them what may well be one of the safest options both to prevent pregnancy and also to uh, control hygiene issues for them. So we use them. We just try to minimize the estrogen dose in these patients, and often we'll try at least at first 20 microgram pills instead of 30 to 35 mics to see if we can regulate them with those. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Women 
Women's Health. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, your host, and we're being joined today by Cassing Hammond, a director and physician at Northwestern University Medical Center in the section of Family Planning and Contraception and the director of OBGYN Services at the Rehab Institute of Chicago. In discussing patients, and particularly women with disabilities and contraception issues, we were just saying that combined oral contraceptives can be used in low doses. Are there any alternatives if someone doesn't tolerate or chooses not to use that particular type of contraception? Sure. But again, they all kind of have their own advantages and disadvantages. We are using alternatives to oral contraceptives in people who, let's say, can't swallow the pill but can still use something that has estrogen. So we do have a number of patients who are, for example, using the NuvaRing, which gives them great cycle control. The only problem is a lot of people who have denervation atrophy of the pelvic floor may have some trouble holding the NuvaRing in place or if they don't have use of their hands, they may not be able to check for its presence or to place it. So they need to have a caregiver who can do so for them. But we have a number of patients with spinal cord injury who are successfully using NuvaRing and also using it continuously to make themselves amenorrheic. Depo-Provera is also quite commonly used among our patients. But there are certain side effects with Depo that we are particularly concerned about in this population. Weight gain is an issue because a lot of our people who are spinal cord injured are already at risk for becoming heavier and heavier, and so giving them yet another agent that may compound this problem can be a problem. Depression is often an issue with Depo, and depressive illness is more common among a lot of women with disabilities, so we're particularly attuned to this at RIC. And then there is the issue of osteopenia. And when I wear my other hat as director of a family planning program, I'm very guarded about bringing this up because I think that the issue of osteopenia in non-disabled adolescents has been incredibly overplayed. It is probably not a significant problem in most teenagers and others who are on depo. And I usually encourage people to use this. But at RIC, where we have people who are truly chronically immobilized and often already osteoporotic, we are a little bit cautious with its use on a long-term basis because it may make a bad situation already worse. Women with disabilities make up a diverse population of often underserved women. We believe a climate of respect, clinical expertise, and special consideration can improve their care and improve clinical success for women with disabilities. Thanks to Dr. Cassing Hammond, who has been our guest, and we've been discussing the challenges of care for women with disabilities in gynecology. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. You've been listening to the Advances in Women's Health from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts, or call toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-639-6157. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. So, Rachel, mm-hmm. now that you're past menopause and we've determined you have osteoporosis, I'd like to start you on prescription-only Avista, raloxifene hydrochloride tablets. Why Avista? Well, because it's the only medicine that reduces the risk of osteoporotic fractures and invasive breast cancer in women like you. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I really at risk for invasive breast cancer? Based on my risk assessment, you may be. Some risk factors for breast cancer include advancing age, family history, and personal history. 
So even though no one in my family has ever had breast cancer, I'm still at risk for other reasons, including my advancing age? Exactly. And I think the benefits outweigh the potential risks for you. It's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. Individual results may vary, of course, but that's exciting news. Exciting? I'll have to take your word on that, doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.